Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte clear liners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you could pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to the Seneca Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with SubChina. SubChina offers a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. Download the app or subscribe to the daily newsletter to get a daily dose of news that will keep you on top of what's happening in China. We are coming to you this week from the studios of the Council on Foreign Relations in Manhattan. I'm Jeremy Golcorn, joined, of course, by shampoo advertisement model and former minister for the suppression of barbarian lies for Baidu, Kaiser Gua. How you doing, KK? <laughs> dog. I'm all right, man. I'm good. I'm, I'm enjoying my time here in New York, definitely. So today we are joined by Rob Schmitz, who has been radio correspondent for Marketplace in Shanghai since 2010. You know, you've, you've heard him on our show before. He was the guy who came on to destroy utterly the fabulous Mike Daisy, who made up all sorts of idiotic stories about children working in iPhone factories. So, hey, uh, you were a Peace Corps volunteer in 1995. You've worked as a journalist both in the U.S. and in Asia since then. So how are you, Rob, man? Good to have I you am back. well. I'm well. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. This is a market improvement, this studio, from your last dig. <laughs> <laughs> I dare say it is. Uh, it's unfortunately not our permanent home. Uh, <laughs> but so today you're here to talk about your new book, The Street of Eternal Happiness, which The Economist has called A Portrait of China from the Stories of a Single Shanghai Street, a Poignant Microcosm. And the New York Times review noted that Schmitz's eye for scenes and ear for dialogue given immediacy to his stories. Uh, welcome back to Seneca, man. Thank you. It's great to be back here. So let's set the scene, Rob. When did you move to Changlalu, which you've translated as the street of eternal happiness? Uh, and what can you tell us about the neighborhood? I moved to Changlalu on, uh, let's see, it was in July of 2010. I had just been assigned uh, the Marketplace China correspondent. And we moved my, so it was my my wife and my uh, my now eldest son, but we only had one son back then, Rainy. We moved to this by far the least interesting place on the street, a complex called The Summit, which is a kind of a large apartment complex covered in white bathroom tiles. As so many buildings are. <laughs> it, was, it was like the kind of the hallmark of the, of the 90s and 2000s kind of architectural style in China. And from there, I, I started to explore a little. And this was an interesting time in Shanghai because you know, 2010 was the, the year that, that Shanghai hosted the World's Fair. And, uh, you know, Shanghai had uh, done a lot of building uh, to get to that point. They had built all these subway lines. Um, they had sort of rebuilt the city, uh, constructed the city, you know, for 20 years before that. The whole city was sort of a big construction site. And, uh, and there it was, ready. And so I arrived amidst uh, a pretty interesting kind of background. Uh, and Changlulu, uh, the street that I ended up focusing on, is... Is sort of it's you know it's a street inside the French the former French concession of Shanghai you know the French set up this neighborhood 
uh, around 150 years ago. It's sort of distinctive because it has uh, you know these trees that sort of line the London plane trees that line all of the all of the boulevards in the neighborhood. Uh, you guys have been there, obviously, and you know this place. And a lot of foreigners like to yeah, live there. They do. Mm. Yeah, a lot of foreigners like to live there. Foreigners set it up, and so it attracts foreigners uh, now. Uh, you know, with a with a nice little break in between those two foreigner periods. <laughs> <laughs> but your book, of course, is not really about foreigners. It's about it is not. No, I, I two years after I arrived, uh, you know, I'm the only correspondent for Marketplace, and I cover China's economy. And I wanted to sort of take a step back from the sort of brutal news cycle that you sort of get used to as a journalist in China, sort of the Twitter universe of China. And, and I'm unfamiliar with this. <laughs> yeah, are you? Yeah, yeah, sort of. And and so I, I wanted to I wanted to take a step back from that and focus on on just real people. And I tried to figure out a way to do that. And I thought, well, why don't I just, you know, I wanted to do something about, I wanted to take like a geographic place and just kind of focus on it, like almost like an anthropologist would over a period of time, because I wanted to do, I wanted to do this over a year. And after a while, I just realized, you know, why don't I just focus on the street that I live on? Because you're lazy. So because I'm lazy. It, yeah. Because I, I didn't really want to move very far. <laughs> right. No, and in That's fact, in fact, the reason I did that was because I was so busy that I, you know, basically this was the only thing I could probably manage, you know, do, doing these features on just normal folks who live and work along uh, the street that I live on, this one single street in Shanghai. And when you met these uh, these people, I mean, did you initially sort of make friends with them without telling them what your purpose was, or did you introduce yourself as somebody who's working on a series of radio? I plan on, on chronicling, you know, the everyday. Well, it's hard for me to sort of sneak up on people because I have an I have a shotgun microphone in my hand, and so when that's I that's a bit of a giveaway that you're not yeah, uh, you're not just coming. Not only to make am I a Laowai, but I, I've got a Laowai with a very large microphone, and and it's a shotgun, so it's like this it's this is enormous microphone, this big like thing that looks like a ferret on top of it, <laughs> um, and and you know if that's not daunting enough, you know, and and for for a lot of folks, you know, that was just way too much for them. They said, no way, I don't want to talk to you. But surprisingly, most people that I approached for the initial radio series were totally down with talking to me because I wasn't there to talk to them about what was going on in politics or anything like that. I just wanted to talk to them about their lives. And a lot of folks that live on the street, um, they own little shops. They're business owners. And so when you step into their shop, you know that's, that's their territory. They feel comfortable in that territory. And I would usually start by asking them questions about their business. You know, uh, how much money are you making? Yeah, that's funny. That's that's what Chinese people always ask me. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly, right? And that's what they ask me too, right? And so I think as an economics reporter, that in some ways has been really nice because I'm, you know, the first questions aren't these really kind of sensitive questions. A lot of of my first questions to folks normally are, how much money do you make? How much money did you make a few years ago? How have things changed economically for you? And that's something that I think most Chinese are totally fine with answering. Because they ask me that question usually too, right? Much easier to answer than, you know, what do you think of the government, basically? Yeah, yeah. but, you know, after a while, you know, the questions sort of lead in that direction naturally. You know, you start talking about the economy, and, and of course, everything's tied up in politics in China in some ways. And so I think those maybe what are considered sensitive questions start to kind of come out sometimes. And, and, and it's interesting how that happens. Yeah, so, so talk a little bit about the geography of the area. I mean, so Changlu is, is in the French concession. So how does that differ from other neighborhoods of Shanghai? I mean, what's what's peculiar about this particular neighborhood? 
Well, what's really peculiar, I think, are the trees, like I mentioned before. The French uh, the, planks. The right? London plane trees, uh-huh. because those those really, I think, and the way that they prune them still today is really distinctive. They do something that's called pollarding, which means that they, 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 they basically stunt their growth over the entire lifespan of the tree so that the trees are are constantly, they can't grow up, and so they grow sideways. They grow into each other, making these mm, long green Canopies, tunnels. yeah. Exactly. So that, and the reason that, part of the reason that they do that is to offer a lot of shade uh, during the hot summers of Shanghai, to offer protection from the rain. And it's funny because a lot of these trees are also, they, they kind of like goalposts. And the reason that they, they, they prune them that way is, is because when typhoons come through, uh, the wind can go through them without without knocking, knocking them, them down. down. Yeah, right. um, and these are trees that were were sort of planted throughout uh, the civilized world in the 19th century. So you see a lot of these trees in Rome. You see them in New York City. Actually, the the uh, the symbol for the Parks and Rec Department in New York is a London plane leaf. Oh, yeah. And so you see them, especially like if you go to Bryant Park. They're planted all over Bryant Park. Uh, they're in Sydney. They're in Buenos Aires. So it, it's interesting. That around that time of, uh, you know, around that historical time, these these were planted all over the place. And uh, because they're good urban trees, they they soak up uh, smog very well. And and so that's the biggest distinctive, I, uh, I think, quality of this neighborhood, as well as just the way that the the roads are, and and the fact that I think Shanghai, the the city government, has done a pretty good job, I would say, at at preserving the look of the neighborhood. Uh-huh. Um, I mean, there's a lot of complaints about, uh, you know, so many things that this Chinese government has done. But I think the one thing that they've done pretty well is they've they've, they've preserved that kind of look uh, of that section of the city. Because when you go there, it's very distinctive. But when you go to Jing'an, for example, that was the old British concession, that has a different look to it. It's it's more urban. It's more condensed, right? It's it's more dense. There's there's more people. Um, you still see some trees, but it's it's just it's more buildings, really. I mean, Shanghai's government has done fairly well. I mean, in my estimation, in terms of preservation of old buildings as well. What about in in gentrification? That must be happening. I mean, yeah. it's not just the, the the foreigners who aren't necessarily the rich people anymore. No, no, to, God, who, no, who are moving no. it right. No, I mean, most of the the folks in the, in that you know complex that I live in, uh, you know, it's a nice complex. I mean, most most of them are rich Chinese, right? And uh, but the folks that you talk to. Mm-hmm. Aren't they're not right? Um, yeah. How how are they responding to the influx of all of these uh, wealthier people? Well, a lot of them make their money off of this, so I think for them it's not a bad thing, you know. Because you know, actually, see, two or three of the folks that I focus on who are main characters in the book uh, come from somewhere else. They're YD rent, and so they they're they're you know they, they came you know to make money in the city, and so they depend on this capital for for their livelihood. You know, Joshua Ling, one of the characters yeah. that I focus on, she's a she's a flower shop owner, and so you know she not only uh, depends on you know wealthy Chinese for her business, but she also depends on the government because for a long time before Xi Jinping came into power, uh, the government would you know you would have the city government or the district government would have these banquets, and she would she would basically cater these banquets, and they they'd, they'd buy so many flowers from her, and actually after. Xi Jinping came into power with the anti-corruption campaign. Suddenly, she lost all these orders because that was sort of seen as excessive. And so a lot of these austerity measures um, had a pretty interesting impact on some of the folks that that I focus on in the book. Is she unhappy about that? I she mean- is. Yeah, I mean, this is something that I talk to her a lot about. Yeah, she, I mean, every time I, you know, we... we, we one of the biggest things that she loves to talk about, obviously, she loves to complain a lot, obviously, like like you know, many people on the street. But she she complains about money, you know. And she's not making as much as she used to uh, five ten years ago, and and that's a big problem for her. 
And so we actually had a very interesting conversation one time when, when her son was around. And her son is, is a really educated guy, despite the fact that uh, he, he was a dropout from high school. And he's a big Xi Jinping supporter uh, because he, he, he believes that Xi Jinping um, is going to kind of lead China into, you know, he, I think he, he's Something kind of, about a dream. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, the Chinese dream. But I think, I think that he likes Xi Jinping because he does believe there's a lot of problems that Xi Jinping is addressing, uh, like corruption, I think was his, one of his biggest complaints. But it's interesting because his mom, you know, sort of thrives off of that. <laughs> so she's pro-corruption, basically. <laughs> she's... Okay. Well, she's pro money. You know, she's pro making money, and pro, basically, this, sales, you know, yeah. the, the whole system. You know, money went. You know, corruption makes the world go round in some ways. You know, and, and I think that that's starting to change a little. Let's talk about some of the other characters in the book. Uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about CK? He's quite a, a yeah. curious individual. CK owns a, a sandwich shop on the street, and uh, he has a pretty interesting background. I think he's he's well, he's the youngest character in the book. He's uh, he's in, now he's in, he's in his early thirties. So what, CK's sandwiches and accordions or something. Like that. Yeah. So he he has a yeah. So he sells accordions over the phone now, and then he has a sandwich shop that he set up that basically makes no money. Um, it's starting to make money now, though. Finally. It's a front for the accordions. Yeah, and 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 so which are like crack. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but you know this this sales combination. You know where else but in China could you find this type of sales combination, <laughs> right? This guy's like peddling sandwiches and then peddling accordions on the side, right? It's kind of crazy. But so CK grows up in 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 uh, Hunyang, which is a industrial city in in Hunan province. And he's sort of a miserable childhood. You know, he has an abusive father. Um, he's an only child. His parents get divorced. And this is back in, in the 1980s where divorce was sort of rare. Um, and he, he attempted suicide when he was pretty young. I wrote about that scene in the, in the, in the first chapter. But then he sort of picks himself up. He, uh, he's a musician. He actually is a big fan of yours, Kaiser. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah. Maybe he, he can come join us on accordion. That would be great. Yeah. And he's, he still plays pretty well. And so he got a, he, he was able to get into university in, in Guangdong, and he studied the accordion. And then after he graduated, he uh, got a job with Pearl River, uh, which is a, a large state-owned enterprise that makes instruments in, in China. And uh, he was on their accordion line, and he was a manager of the assembly line for accordions. It was a great job, right? This is a, a kind of an iron rice bowl job. And, and he... Uh, Totally got sick of it. He hated it. And he just quit. Well, back then it was from each accordion to his needs and to each accordion to his abilities. <laughs> exactly. And so he quits this job and his his parents sort of, you know, his parents have already lost their jobs because this, this was a, you know, in the 90s, his parents both worked for SOEs as well. And they both, they both lost their jobs you know, during the, the privatization of the 90s. And um, they were pretty angry about it. But then he found this job um, working for Polverini, which is an Italian accordion maker. And Polverini had sent an Italian engineer to Shanghai to start up an assembly line to make accordions uh, in Shanghai. And he hired CK uh, as, as, as his kind of sideman. And, and from there on, CK figured out how to assemble an accordion, which is a pretty difficult thing to do because these are pretty complicated instruments. Yeah, right? yeah. And he had to manage an assembly line full of, uh, full of workers and, and basically teach them how to do it um, so he he became an engineer, you know, by by not by not by an education, not by like a, a university, but 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 they're doing something. Um, he learns how to do this. He becomes a sales manager for the for the company inside of China. He makes a lot of money 
and he he probably makes more than the average American right now. So from that job, and then with that money, he establishes this sort of slightly ill-conceived sandwich shop <laughs> after taking a trip to Chicago. He's inspired by the, he sees a sandwich shop and he thinks, this is amazing. You know, and, 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 and he comes back home and decides to buy a, a second floor space across the street from where I live. And he calls it second floor, your sandwich. And the problem is that it is on the second floor and because of these plane trees I was just talking about, you can't see it. Uh, it's completely right. invisible. You know, it's completely obscured <sighs> oh, by these trees. And so he doesn't have many people. I mean, once you get inside this place, it's great. It's a beautiful little shop. And it's a beautiful cafe. You can just hang out in there all day. But uh, no one can find it. No, but he's not like been turned on to why my. I mean, is he like? <laughs> no, well, he's. He, I think they, I think they actually have. Well, too. So the interesting thing about that shop is that it's it's across the street from an enormous skyscraper called the Center. Where oh yeah, it's like Ogilvy yeah, 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 and yeah, 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 you know yeah. a lot of the a lot of the marketing yeah, yeah. firms I've have spent their some offices time in that there. Building. Yeah, right. And so on, you know, I think he was naturally thinking, well, you know, on their on their lunch break they'll come and, and eat my sandwiches. But the problem was is that you know a lot of folks weren't interested in eating sandwiches. They they, they wanted some cheaper food. Damn. So you've lived in Shanghai now since 2010, but you've also traveled pretty widely in China. What is there that's particularly Shanghainese about the characters and the stories in your book? I mean, you know, you can you can talk about a couple of the other guys. I mean, there, we don't want to spoil it for everybody, but, you know, Auntie Fu, Mr. Clean, uh, you know, would If you were to, you know, write a, a similar book about people on a street in Beijing, would it come off really differently? I don't think something? so. Honestly, okay. I, I, you know, the answer to that question is is that I don't think there's anything specifically Shanghainese about any of the characters that I write about. Ah. You know, and I, I went into well, it thinking well, that... Well, a couple of them are white Iran, so I guess that... Well, yeah, and, and a couple of them are, you know, Shanghai Iran. Uh-huh. And, 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 you know, Sahin. one of them... One, yeah, Shanghai. And, and they, one of them doesn't speak Mandarin. He speaks Shanghainese. Oh, wow. Yeah. Do you? Do you? I don't. Okay, so, so how did you... You know, when I was... <laughs> you had when to I have was a visiting, Yeah, no, I, I had my assistant with me. Oh, wow. You know, she's from Shanghai. So she was translating. Um, and that's actually uh, Mayor Chen, who is the unofficial mayor of Maggie Lane, the plot of land uh, that has this really interesting history um, that still continues to this day. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, the, you, can you talk a little bit about that? I mean, the, yeah. the Chen Zhongdao and Xie Guozhen yeah. and their decade-long battle against the forced demolition of their so, home. So when, when I first moved in to the summit, which is this apartment complex that we live in, um, out my living room window, so out the, out the so I... The, I have two windows on both sides of the of the of, of the apartment. On one side is Changlalu, other side is this enormous vacant lot full of weeds, stray cats, rats, and these burned out homes. These Shirkumen homes, these these uh, these traditional homes in Shanghai, and, and it's it's almost it's half a block, so it's it's quite large. And when I first moved in, I thought, what what is what is this? Uh-huh. You know, because this is a really nice neighborhood. Why hasn't this been developed? What's the story here? And when I started asking around, I kept hearing rumors. Uh, and the rumor was that someone had been murdered there. And so I decided, and th- the other thing was, is that there were still people inside this vacant lot living in these like half-destroyed homes. And I, I was trying to make sense of that too, thinking, are these squatters? What is this? And so there's an entrance on Wuyuanlu, which is uh, this street that's kind of parallel to Changlu. And I ended up 
uh, finding a time when the guard was, there was a security guard there, when the guard was on, on lunch, and I just kind of let myself in. And I got to meet uh, some of the folks that lived inside, and they sort of told me the story of what had happened here. And what had happened was when Shanghai was making way for the World's Fair, um, there was a lot of neighborhoods that were raised, and this was this was one of them. But they this this neighborhood was originally slated to be sort of redesigned to 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 look like a Shirkumen neighborhood, uh, and and the agreement at first was that folks could move back into their homes there. So uh, they were going to destroy the old houses and yes. then build fake exactly. new houses Make that looked the same. Exactly, make a jiada, kind right. of like Ligong, right? And that's not what happened. What happened was once once Shanghai got the bid for the, the World's Fair, they changed the terms and they started offering um, compensation packages to the people in the, in that lane. And they started moving them out to the exurbs of, of Shanghai. And of course, like a lot of these situations that we've seen over and over throughout China, especially in urban China, you know, there's always holdouts, right? And so, of course, there was this group of holdouts that didn't want to move. They wanted to stay in their home. Uh, Chen Zhongdao, you mentioned, he his his father had uh, bought uh, his home uh, with gold, and and so you know this was a home that, that that you know he 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 strongly believed like I own this home. This is my home. You can't take this from me. And he, he wanted to at least to live in the neighborhood, but you know the district government of Xiuhui uh, did not did not really agree to those terms. They uh, they sold the land to a developer, and that developer ended up um, using some pretty strong arm tactics to get rid of people. And one of the things that they did is they started lighting fires um, at the base of their homes to scare them out. Wow! And one of those one of those instances um, in 2005 went very very bad. And uh, at night they set fire to one of the homes where an elderly couple was inside. They were in their 80s, and the uh, the, the the husband uh, had served with the PLA um, in the Korean War, so he was a ve- he was a war veteran, and they died, they burned to death. And it was clearly the developers that had done. Uh, did these fuckers get their comeuppance? Or uh, yes. Okay. So what happened after that? <clears throat> in 2006, there was a trial. The developer, which was, his name was Cheng Kai, ended up. Uh, there were three men. Two two death two reprieve death sentences and one life sentence. Okay. After that, for was this murder. for the thugs who did it or for for management of the company? For the thugs who did it. Right. It's and always the it was thugs. not the management got off. Right. Yeah. And and so those and what 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 was really interesting about that case and I, I'm going to go away from the Maggie Lane case here just for a second. Later on, when I started looking into what was on the land before the summit, the place that I lived in. I discovered that there was also a death by fire for that land to clear that land, and, and that explains the poltergeist activity in your home. Right? <laughs> uh, okay, but when I when I looked into that, I found the there was a man who had been burned to death. Oh, geez! For the land that I live on, I found his widow, and she now after that happened. She, um, you know, she's in the book too. Her name is Xi Guojian. So Xie Guojian is is is, is like very similar names here. But she, her name is Xi Guojian. Xi Guojian and her son uh, Zhu Weiqi, they're both characters in my book. Who you know, you know, Zhu uh, Weiqi lost his dad, and she, and she lost her, her husband. But what happened was the the same guy who started that fire, in Maggie Lane, 
had burned uh, this man to death for the, the property that I lived on. And that, was, that happened in 1996. It happened 10 years earlier. And it was not ruled a murder. Uh, when the police, the police said that uh, they, they, they listened to these, these uh, thugs. Uh-huh. And the thugs said, oh, he set himself on fire. Yeah, right. And he got off. And so ever since that day, uh, the widow, who, who I pro- profile in the book, she petitions. And she's been petitioning. You know, she's one of these petitioners. And she, she petitions all the way up to Zhongnanhai. So she gets arrested over and over and over up in Beijing. Um, she goes out in front of Zhongnanhai. And she throws leaflets, and then she's tackled. She's taken to Ma Jialo, which is a, a, a detention center for petitioners up there. Yeah. And then um, they, she's usually in there for two weeks, three weeks. They let her out. She goes straight back to Zhongnanhai and does it again. She's done this dozens of times. And her son, Wei Qi, when she started doing this, he was in middle school. You know, and her son was also, you know, obviously he had lost a father and his home, right? They were given a small apartment as a conversation. So her son, her son lives alone. He's studying by himself. And when I asked her, you know, I, I interviewed her um, four years ago for the first time, and I asked her, you know, I, I was almost scared to ask, you know, what what happened to your son? He said, she tells me, oh, he's at Cornell. Oh my God! And I said, he's at Court, Cornell University. She said, in the United States. And she said, yeah. I said, well, what's he doing there? Well, oh, he's getting his PhD in economics. Oh my God! Yeah, and so let it never be questioned again. The Chinese people are a resilient people. Yeah, <laughs> and so um, wow, that's amazing. It is amazing, and and this Wei Qi, he, he's one of honestly, like, in this book, he's one of he's he's really inspiring. I mean, this this kid, he's gone through so many awful things. He was ten years old when his father was burned to death, and um, you know, it obviously had a very deep impact on him. And now he's he like threw himself into close his close on thirty now, right? Yeah. And now he's yeah, he's thirty years old now. And he um, he works for uh, UBS. Uh, he's a he's a derivatives trader for UBS in Hong Kong. <laughs> oh man! And I thought he turned out to be a good guy. Well, <laughs> yeah. well, you know he's he's been through a lot, and uh, I think what he wants is um, economic security. And and I think it, it's interesting. So his story is one of the the stories from that that section of the book. And actually, I'm doing a I <clears throat> I'm doing a, a marketplace story. That's going to air, I think, next week uh, uh, about about him. I went down to Hong Kong a few weeks ago just to kind of check in with him again, and and uh, we did a final uh, radio piece on him. Let's let's talk a little bit about Mr. Clean. Um, <laughs> like the U.S., I mean, China is a country where there are a lot of advertisements for health remedies, for medicines, for various you know snake oils, uh, doctors, uh, much of which is just outright quackery. Uh, and I'd like to, at this point to remind everyone that I no longer actually work for Baidu. <laughs> <laughs> now, can you tell us about Mister? Cl- <laughs> tell us about Mister Clean and his sexual potency. Oh, uh, his sexual potency potions. So Mister Clean is a guy, one of the many. He, he, I mean, does he, is he bald? Is that yes. why I call him Mister? He looks like Mister Clean. Like, he's like the he's the Chinese version of Mister Clean. He's a. He's a retired PLA guy. He's an army guy Muscular from Chengdu. and bald. And he's really big and he's bald. He's uh, probably around 60 years old. I met Mr. Clean. And virile. Um, virile very virile. Right? Yes, he is, or claims to be. Uh, I met him uh, on one of Auntie Fu, who is one of the main characters in the book. Auntie Fu is in her 60s. Um, she's married. Uh, her husband, uh, his name is Uncle Feng. And he makes Song Yobing, 
uh, and sells them out of his kitchen on the street. Fucking love Tonyo Bing. Tonyo Bing. His Tonyo Bing, he charges a little extra because he thinks they're much better than anyone else's. Are these the deep fried or the dry pan fried version? It's the pan fried. Okay, good. Yeah. And so he and he, he and his wife don't like each other at all. And they, they, they bicker and they argue all the time. He's more of a practical gentleman. Uh, he believes in hard work. Auntie Fu comes from, you know, this, this generation. She was born, uh, you know, around the time that, that China was, quote unquote, liberated. And she grew up during the, the Cultural Revolution, right? And so she grew up not really having much of an education. She was of this generation that sort of, you know, were sort of lost, and so she ended up. So she believes in strife and and yes, <laughs> well, struggle. well, but you know the one thing you know she was sent you know she was sent to to you know they 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 met each other in a bingtuan in 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 Xinjiang, in Xinjiang. yeah, and so they were. Okay, so they let's were, explain just for listeners who might yeah. not know what a bingtuan is. Uh, so the bingtuan, Jeremy, you, you're you're our definer. Let's. Uh, so they were uh, People's Liberation Army troops that were sent to basically uh, build stuff in Xinjiang, yep. farms and infrastructure. And to colonize. And to colonize. Right? Yeah. So there are yeah. these large yeah. military colonies, essentially, yep. in, in, and they control very significant business interests in Xinjiang. Yep. And they still do today. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so they were part of a bingtuan that uh, was established outside of Akasu in, in uh, western Xinjiang province near Kyrgyzstan. And their their goal there was to turn desert into farmland, and of course this was impossible in this area, and they nearly starved to death. But they they met each other at one of these at one of these farms. Wow! And and so she, you know, they she has this very romantic kind of memory of life in Xinjiang, even though um, his memory is is starkly different. He, he considers it a hellhole. Um, but she wants to go back there because I think she just cannot handle the the society that surrounds her in Shanghai. This this display of wealth that everyone seems to be rich except me. What are they doing right that I'm not doing? And so she ends up getting involved in a lot of these investment schemes and a lot of these pyramid schemes, and making herself poorer. Making herself poor. She's dumping her pension from the Bingtuan into endless pyramid schemes. And uh, so I, I write about this in the book, about the, this variety of schemes that she's involved in. And I go to some of these investment meetings with her, and I over and over try to convince her that these are all scams. Um, but isn't, that, isn't that violating the prime directive in a way? I mean, <laughs> she's not interfere. <laughs> well... I like her very much. She's a friend yeah. of mine. And, okay. and I hate to see her. The thing is, she's not savvy. And, and she's, a, she's, a perfect, she's a perfect target for these types of schemes because she can't get on the internet. She can't afford the internet. I can. So I'm showing her all these things that I'm finding on Baidu about, about the problems with these companies, right? And I, I print them out and I show it to her and she still doesn't oh, they believe have, them. They have that kind of thing on Baidu. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's it. You guys. Baidu can be pretty progressive sometimes. <laughs> they are. I mean. um, so, you know, these were news items that I found, you know, basically saying that, okay, in this city, this company that she's investing in uh, was found to be a scam and all of the leaders were thrown into prison. And even when I showed her these things, she still didn't believe me. So one of, going back to Mr. Clean, the last chapter or the second to last chapter that I write about uh, Auntie Fu, she drags me to probably the most ridiculous uh, investment scheme uh, that that I've seen from her. And that was uh, a company 
that is a direct sales kind of company, a pyramid scheme, mm-hmm. uh, that's, that is centered around selling sexual health pads that you put in your underwear. You stick them on the inside of your underwear. And the idea is that the um, traditional Chinese medicine-soaked pads inside the, the pad will, will basically draw out all of the toxins from that area of your body. Well, yeah. Isn't, isn't that the area of the body that naturally dispenses toxins anyway? I mean, I don't know. Maybe my, my Kaiser, autonomy. you are correct. It is. <laughs> okay. That's what I was told. But the toxins that these things uh, extract, according to the photos that uh, they showed us at this investment meeting, and I, I have them on my phone, I can show you. Oh, no, let's, um, I don't are, I want to see Are this. absolutely horrible. Um, it looked like black jelly. Uh, and, you know, they would, you know, the the interesting thing about this meeting is Mr. Clean would come in, you know, I was there, Auntie Fu's there, and then there's probably six or seven other older folks like that kind of are like her, and he's he's got all these photos spread out over a conference table of pads before and after, and it's just and the pads are called like these ridiculous names like Heavenly Happiness and things like that. It's just. It was it was the most bizarre, sad, and awful sort of meeting that she took me to. Oh man! In some ways, the uh, your book reminds me a little bit of Evan Osnos's book, Age of Ambition, in the sense that you know many of the stories you tell are connected with people's hopes and dreams. And of course, the Chinese dream is uh, one of Xi Jinping's favorite catchphrases. The concept does seem to have staying power, the, the idea yeah. of a Chinese dream, just because of, of what's going on in China right now, you know, whether you look at it from the, it the point the of view of the party yeah. or, or, you know, ordinary people's dreams. Do you think there is a common characteristic of, of the people in your book in, in terms of what they dream about and what their hopes are? Something that ties them together in that? I think that the the common dream that they probably share is that except for Auntie Fu probably because she hasn't achieved this yet, is that a lot of their dreams go beyond money. And I think that for a long time... And this is surprising for Shanghai. Yeah, Yeah, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. For a long time, you know, when you look at China ever since reform and opening, the focus obviously was on on money, on on improving your economic status, right, for the country as well as, as individually. But I think we've gotten to a point, obviously, in China, especially in places like Shanghai, where people are looking beyond that now. You know, these dreams are going everywhere. They're spreading like wildfire. They're, they, they could, it could be a dream of getting your, your, your child abroad to study in a, in a foreign university, right? And setting up camp there and maybe getting a, a passport. It could be a dream of finding spirituality, right? CK, for example, is a good example of this. You know, CK, after, having this kind of failing business for a while becomes a devout Buddhist and finds a master and studies under this master. And, and, and really it, it, it really impacts his life. And so that's his dream from sandwiches to Sanskrit. (laughs) Oh, that's good. Kaiser. And then, you know, I think for someone like mayor Chen and, and his wife, you know, their dream is, is, is to have, to have their property be, be deemed their property to have, you know, to have personal property, you know, to have rights to personal property, mm. you know, to have equal rights, right? That that means something to them. Good and luck. Think, yeah, yeah, <laughs> good I know. Luck with that. I know, good luck with that. But I think, you know, when you're talking about the yeah. Chinese dream, in some ways, I, I believe that the Chinese dream and the, the conception of that 
has a lot to do with a reaction to these dreams that have kind of gone all over the place in China. And it's an attempt to corral all of those dreams, right? Probably too late into one dream for the, the nation and the party, making sure that the party is the first thing that is in your dreams and then everything, you know, your own personal dreams can go later. Rob, there must have been other people you considered profiling for the book but had to leave out in the end. Uh, can you yeah. talk about some of those people and yeah. why they didn't make the cut? There were a couple uh, people in specific. One, one, of, one of these folks was, um, he was a Kung Fu master um, who was in his 70s. And he sort of, there's a public park on the eastern end of Changlulu. And he was sort of this guy who sort of ran the morning exercises at the park, you know. And, we, you know, if you've been to parks in China, you sort of know these guys. Like, they're kind of the ringleaders. Um, you know, there's usually old folks dancing at five in the morning. But he was sort of leading the kung fu exercises and the tai chi exercises, the tai chi chuan exercises in the park. And I got to know him. And um, he he was a really interesting guy. But... Once I broached the topic of, hey, you know, I'm writing a book and I'd love to include you in this, he just said, no way. And, and I started to realize uh, after hearing his reason that he, he may not be completely stable mentally uh, because he said, no, the, 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 the Guomindang are out to get me and uh, they, they're, they're, they're going to assassinate me. And so I don't want any sort of attention placed on me. And, yeah, I, and I, the, I can't imagine why you would have <laughs> dis- not included so such a character. I think I realized right there and then, maybe it's a good idea that I don't include him in this book. <laughs> so it's probably for the better. There's another gentleman that uh, runs a clothing shop that's actually not too far from where uh, Joshua Ling has her flower shop. And um, this guy is, he's a local. And um, and he's gay, and uh, he he runs this shop, and he's he's just a delightful man, and I really I, you know I I visited him over and over, I really liked him, and the thing is he has a sister who is constantly there outside. She sits on a lawn chair out outside on the on the sidewalk, and just hangs out there, and he sits by her, and they talk all day. But once she realized that I was there to, you know, possibly write about him, uh, she would not have any of it, and she because it would she, it would expose the shameful family secret of his homosexuality. That's right. Oh God. Yeah, and and uh, and that that was unfortunate because had she not been in the picture, I think he would have been very open to that because oh, he man. talked a lot about it. Uh, it was a very big part of who he, who he is today, and um, you know, and he was pretty well off. He was pretty successful. He had a pretty good clothing shop. He actually, there's a lot of clothing shops around that stretch of the street that go up and 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 disappear within months because they just they're not selling the right thing. But he he actually had a pretty good eye for these things, and he he was there. He had been there for a long time. So Rob, you've worked as a print journalist. You've done radio for many years, and now you've written a book, uh, and 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 have been on a podcast or two. <laughs> so what, what, what do you think is the difference between? No, let's not count podcasts here, of course, but the difference between. <laughs> What do you think are the differences between these different types of media? Um, what do you find to be the most satisfying way of telling complex, compelling stories? Ooh, that's a really good question. I think all of them have their strengths. I think, you know, radio for me, the reason I like radio so much is that it, it really boils down to the individual. You know, when you're, when you're with radio, it's, it's such an intimate medium, 
you know, you're, you're speaking to one person, you're interviewing one person. And it really goes back to the original way that we conveyed information with each other. We told we stories, talk, right? right? It's exactly. the oral tradition, right? It's, it's the original way that we conveyed any information. And I like that. I, I like, I like that it gets down to the basics of conveying information. And I like the, I like the honesty in it too, because you've got a microphone, right? And in China, that just automatically makes people honest, right? Yeah. Well, no, but it, it what it does is that it establishes the relationship very clearly when you show up. Right. You know, and I think that as a print journalist, it can be a little foggy sometimes. You know, you can show Sneaking up Sneaking around with a notebook. Right. No, right? <laughs> no, I mean, that's I mean, true. I think no, that's true. I think I think it I think it can be like that, you know. And I think you know, and so I think you know, I'm I'm kind of glad I'm a radio reporter because I I, I like I like the medium because it I, I'm able to tell human stories, and I like I like doing that. And I think the human stories in China are just fascinating. I think you got to capture the best of both, though, because you you went at this from a sort of radio perspective, but then got to turn these long, sort of you know slowly unspooled narratives into a book, which is yeah. also you know gives you room to unpack right. and you know put in the context and yeah. And it's, that's it's, the big limit to radio is that you only have about five or six minutes to tell a story, and there's there's only so much you can pack in there. Or fifty minutes if you're doing a podcast. Which is nice. <laughs> you guys are lucky. Yeah, we are. I mean, I, I actually. Actually, I, th- I love this medium. I think it's a, it's a perfect medium for you know storytelling. Yeah. yeah, I think it's great. Yeah, uh, and and you know with that, I, Rob, man, I, the book is, is called Street of Eternal Happiness. It's getting rave reviews. It just came out. It's today launch day. Today is okay. Launch? So okay, so we're not sure when this actually goes, but today uh, is is May seventeenth here in New York. Uh, so congrats, man. Thank you. Yeah, you must be uh, your your third child now. Um, so before we get to recommendations, uh, I want to remind our listeners that the Seneca podcast is powered by SupChina. Uh, check out the app and subscribe to the newsletter at SupChina.com. You can follow SupChina on Twitter at, at SupChina News or on Facebook at Facebook.com slash SupChina News. And on we go to recommendations. Jeremy, kick us off. What do you got for us? Um, there's a podcast uh, produced by, I think, Longform which is a magazine and website. Yeah, long time, um, yeah. And uh, the podcast is pretty good. I mean, it depends of the ge- on the guest, of course, just like our, ours does. But they have long-form interviews with interesting people. So I just listened to one with uh, Seymour Hirsch. Oh, Seymour Hirsch. Wow, wow, wow. He's an interesting, if slightly kooky and conspiratorially minded guy. Yeah, but really wonderful voice. Very, very entertaining to listen to him. Ah, uh, ha, ha, ha. Rob, what do you have for us? Am I allowed to give uh, something that hasn't been released yet? Yes, you are. Okay, so I'm incredibly excited, and this is something I haven't read it yet, obviously, but um, it's a book that's going to come out very soon, I know, or at least later this year, maybe early next year. Um, it's a book by Ian Johnson, and it's—I'm uh, not even sure if I'm allowed to even talk about this yet. If he wants, oh, I know we, we all know he's working on a book. I mean, yeah. he's been on the podcast many times, and he's, yeah, okay, he's a good. dear friend. So, yeah. but uh, I'm really excited to read uh, his next book because I, I know it's going to be about religion in China, right, and this right. is something that I'm absolutely fascinated by. And yeah, he is. I mean, there's nobody who's more expert. Uh, and, You're completely right. Uh, yeah, and and sympathetic too. I mean, right. he himself is is is. Uh, is is deeply steeped in this stuff, Jeremy. If you were or me were to, if you or I were to write such a book, I think we wouldn't be quite as fair, because you're a <laughs> flaming fucking atheist. Right? <laughs> he should have interviewed you guys for this book. Yeah, no, he, he should have, man. It's not too late. Is I'll, Ian, give me a call, man. I'll such. Um, 
yeah, good good recommendation. Yeah, Ian, anything that Ian does, I I'm, I have time for, plenty of time for. Uh, my recommendation is in an app that that it's 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 a few years old now, but I only recently revisited. I just got myself one of them nice new iPhone six pluses, and I'm I'm delighted by it. it it's a great thing to read on, and so I've been reading a lot more. I mean, I used to, you know, I don't like reading on my little iPhone, and I I I, I don't always want to haul out my iPad when I want to. Uh, Read so the iPhone six is a terrific compromise and and the perfect app for it is Flipboard. Uh, if you haven't revisited it um, in a while, do so because it's it's just great. It's just one of the best ways that you can get the stories that your people you know the people that you follow on Twitter are posting um, and organize it by the categories that you're interested in. I mean it, it's it's an addictive, wonderful interface and I, I just I cannot stop flipping through this stuff and just re- reading stories. It's it's. It's great. Flipboard. Uh, take us out, Jeremy. The Seneca Podcast is powered by SubChina and is produced by Kaiser Gore and me, Jeremy Goldcorn. Special thanks this week to the Council on Foreign Relations, who have generously loaned us their studio space. And, of course, to Anla Chung, Soraya Darabi, and Amadeo Tumomilo from SubChina. Drop us an email at Seneca at SubChina.com. Visit our Facebook page at Facebook.com slash Seneca Podcast and follow us on Twitter at Seneca Podcast. Thanks for listening. See you all next week.